This week, the Down and Nerdy Podcast is brought to you by Claritin D. And shout out to the folks at Claritin who not just sponsored the show, but also provided some samples as well. Tis the season to breathe pollen. Yeah, I've been spending a lot more time outside. Yeah, I can tell those allergies are definitely acting up. I feel stuffy. I feel sluggish. The eyes are starting to water a little bit more. That's why I'm turning to Claritin D. Look, it's definitely helped me relieve my symptoms. It seems to work really, really fast for me as well. It's designed for serious allergy sufferers. Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongestion in your nose so you can breathe better. And hey, I'm noticing a lot of that right now. As a matter of fact, I'm looking forward to be able to enjoy much more outdoor time this spring and summer. A lot of that has to do with Claritin D. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. Spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. Crash landed. From comics to video games. From the cinematic universe to television. Stars in the industry. Something out there had discovered us. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. Maybe this week will be more than meets the eye after all. It's episode 326 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham, and yes, this would be. San Diego Comic-Con week, I'd be in San Diego doing all kinds of great stuff, and yeah, it's Comic-Con at home, thanks COVID, but that doesn't mean we still can't have a great time with Comic-Con at home, which is still going on right now, so we might have a few surprises from Comic-Con at home on the show this week, but we are going to be diving into Transformers, War for Cybertron, Siege with showrunner F.J. DeSantos. Can't wait to talk to him more about a Transformers series that I think is going to be the one I've been waiting for for a long, long time. And by the way, you still can get that 40% off select titles with Serial Box. That's S-E-R-I-A-L Box. D-N-P-O-D. Still the promo code, by the way. We'll talk more about that, though, coming up because there were a couple of big books that hit the shelves this week. The Joker War has begun, and we'll dive into that Batman issue next. It's what we're reading on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey, this is Daveed Bazoos from Gotham, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Whether you're thumbing through pages or flipping through screens, whatever you're reading on, it's time for what we're reading, and it feels like the hype's been going on for a while. It is finally here, Chapter 1 of the Jericho War in Batman number 95 from DC Comics. And James Tynan IV doing the writing there. Jorge Jimenez on the art. Tameo Mori on the colors. Clayton Cowles on the letters. This is basically a look at, a little bit of a spoiler here, in case you don't know what's been going on. This is a look at Joker's hostile takeover of Wayne Enterprises. Maybe one of Joker's biggest power moves Ever, by the way, in this whole relationship that he and Batman have had going on. It actually also gives some insight on how Batman saw Joker early on when he first started encountering his victims. There's some really interesting in-depth insight there, even though it's only a few pages long, really. It really encapsulates everything that's going on now as well. As a matter of fact, this whole issue kind of illustrates just how deeply personal this whole battle is and the lengths that Joker is really willing 
to go. There's something that he does about midway through this issue with his newfound fortune, by the way, that will make you go, wow, of course he would do that. And we also get plenty of punchline in this issue as well, by the way. If you're not familiar with punchline, it's amazing how different to me punchline is from Harley Quinn, like right off the bat. But I I don't want to dive too deep into that. But basically in this story, I mean, she does something that's going to get a lot of attention. Made me mad, actually. Not mad as in, I, you know, this was something that shouldn't have been in the story, but it's like, really, there are certain people you don't mess with. And Punchline messes with one of them in this book. And I'm like, no, 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 no. No, we're not doing that. Don't even think about killing this character. Don't do it. And I won't reveal whether or not they did or they didn't. You'll have to read the issue for yourself. There's also a potential cliffhanger at the end of this issue. I say potential because we don't really get confirmation of it. That's going to really leave you screaming for issue 96. I mean, you're going to want it right that second because ah, the maybes of the ending of this issue, I don't know. Part of me hopes and then I don't hope and you'll understand when you read it. Really, every panel in this book is so detailed and gorgeous. I expect nothing less from Jorge Jimenez, but then... You see it come to life, and you could tell this was an all-out effort by everyone involved on this creative team to make this a statement issue. The Joker War is something that has been hyped for a while now by DC. You've got to live up to that hype, and I feel like this issue really, really did that. I mean, maybe I'm a little biased because I'm a Batman fan anyway, and I think James Tynan IV has really done a great job with the character. I mean, back with Detective Comics and now here actually writing the Batman title. And then you just bring this entire creative team that's just familiar with the character and you get this deeply personal and intense story right out of the gate. Yeah, don't sleep on the Joker War. Make sure you're grabbing this first issue and the rest of them after that. I have a feeling this is going to be a good one. Put this in your pull box. Here's something that I wanted to dive into. I haven't had a Spidey title in a while. So how about Spider-Man Sin Rising Prelude, number one from Marvel Comics. I'll get to that in a second. But Nick Spencer doing the writing here. Guillermo Sana on the art. Jordi Belair on the colors. VCs Joe Caramagna on the letters. Ryan Otley and Nathan Fairbairn doing the cover art for this. Now, what this book really gives us is the secret history of... A little bit of a spoiler, you should already know, though, of the Sin Eater, which is a a very dangerous Spider-Man villain. You know, you've got the mainline villains that everybody knows, right? And then you've got villains like the Sin Eater. You actually get to experience the Sin Eater's life pretty much since birth. I mean, we get a lot of backstory detail. That's the main part of this issue. I got so taken in by that story, too, by the way. My mind drifted away from who he really was. You almost kind of get taken out of that whole part of the equation of the, of who this character really is because you're following their life, not just in the past, but present day as well. The other thing we don't really get is how he's back. There's no real concrete explanation for that, but I mean, I'm sure that there's good plan involved here. I mean, and things are kind of set up 
by what's been going on with what's been going on in Spidey anyway. And I'm this does not feel like a cash grab to me. You might see it, see the title prelude number one and all that stuff. It's like, oh, there's just a cash grab here to set th- something up. I really don't think it is, actually, because you don't get these deep origin stories or this deep meaning from a character like the Sin Eater very often. And I, I you can't take this for granted. If this is something, if you want to dive in to the story that's going to be happening coming up in Spider-Man number 45, Amazing Spider-Man number 45, then you're going to want to get this issue because this is going to help you, help guide you along. As I'm flipping through this story too, the, the art style really gave this book a throwback feel to the 70s and the 80s. And there are some flashback scenes in here as well that, that look almost pretty dead on. Too, by the way, and and once again, and this shouldn't be a surprise here. And Jordy Belair grabbing the spotlight once again, bringing the eeriness of this book to another level with just the stunning and timely color work and the reds that just blanketed this book at times to just take things. To, I, I I hate to keep saying take things to another level, but my goodness. Did it ever because these colors made a huge difference in what this story ended up being. I mean, the line art was very good, too. But without these colors, I don't know where you go with this issue, quite frankly. So, yeah, this is another one that I I mean, obviously, this is a prelude issue, so I can't say throw it in your pull box. But I think this one is definitely worthy of your time and worthy of a read to get you ready for what's going to be coming in the pages of future Spider-Man issues. That's going to do it for what we're reading up next. Let's see what we've got our up our sleeves that might be Comic-Con at home related, shall we? It will be revealed next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Dave Dastmalchen, creator of Count Crowley Reluctant Midnight Monster Hunter. You are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. So every year around this time of Comic-Con, I like to do something different and something interesting at the show that I don't normally get to do. And we've dabbled here. At the Paranormal here in the Down and Nerdy podcast before, and there was a panel on Thursday called Wonder Women Superstars of the Paranormal from Travel Channel and um, some amazing women in the field of the paranormal, like Amy Bruni from Kindred Spirits, Katrina Weidman of of Portals to Hell, Paranormal Explorer Chelsea Layden of Destination Fear, and Psychic Medium Cindy Keza of the Holzer Files. So they we they got together to talk about being women in the field of the paranormal. So I get a chance to join those ladies for a press conference earlier in that week to ask them a few questions. As a matter of fact, the first question was my own saying, what's the biggest misconception about women in the field of the paranormal, which is seen as predominantly male? You all have been able to do a lot of amazing things in this field that is predominantly dominated by men and has been for years. So what is what are some of the common misconceptions that you think people see about women in this field that you can debunk for us? Well, I think, this is Amy, I think one of the biggest misconceptions is that it is very male-dominated. I think that for a long time on television, it was heavily represented by men. Um, but I think that when you actually get out into, like, you know, paranormal conventions and events and see the faces out there, it's actually a very female-driven field. Um, I, I just I find that it's 
probably, you know, at events and things, probably 75% women. I know even on all my social media statistics, 75% of my followers are women. And so it's so interesting that, that something that is so female-based would be, for the longest time, represented by men in the public eye. So I'm so happy to kind of to see that changing and to see Travel Channel in particular really representing and, um, you know, making sure that there are plenty of female uh, you know, female researchers on their shows as well. Yeah, I agree with you. This is Cindy. Uh, Amy, I agree with you. The field of mediumship is very female-driven as well. And I know a lot of the shows that we see on television, just specifically around mediumship, are very female-driven. So I'm really excited to be part of a paranormal show, bringing mediumship to the table, um, because it, it really shows how the two worlds can really work together with, with having the mediumship being, you know, um, in conjunction with all the tools and the technology of the paranormal. So I'm really excited about this opportunity. And I think there are a lot of women, like I said, in paranormal and in mediumship, but I'm glad that we're finally being represented on TV. So it's great. Yeah, this is Katrina. Something to add about, you know, the misconceptions of women in the paranormal. I think, you know, culturally, we've been kind of inundated with these messages for a very long time that, Women can't lead, women can't be brave, women have to learn from men, um, you know, and I think that's definitely bled into this genre for a really long time. And my work in the field, at least, I haven't found that to be, I haven't found any of that stuff to be true. And of course, there's women who don't want to be in those positions of um, leadership in the paranormal, and that's totally fine. Um, but there is definitely a lot of women who are qualified for it and who want to be in those positions. And, um, you know, so I think that whole misconception of the scared woman in the scary place, uh, although maybe that's true for some people, I don't think that the, um, that should be the standard of, of what is normal really, because it's, it's what we, I think what we've all seen is that it's not, there's a lot of really brave women in the field who are, more than happy to step forward and take on that role. This is Chelsea. Um, and kind of going off what Katrina said, um, kind of like on the flip side of the coin, um, I, I can humbly say that I am, I am one of those girls who uh, gets a little freaked out at times. And, you know, I scream when I'm scared and um, all of that. But um, I also wanted to prove that, you know, women can do what guys can do even when, that fear is there. Um, when I committed to the show, I had a conversation with the guys and I told them, you know, I might be the most scared person of the group, but I don't want that fear to dictate what I can and can't do. Um, I didn't want to be like dismayed from what the others were doing just because I was a girl or just because I was scared. And I wanted to, at the very least, try to hang in there and do what they were doing, even if, you know, it involved doing things that you, know, you don't typically think of when you think of a you know a woman on a TV show like getting put in a dungeon alone or you know a hallway that was notorious for women having experiences there. But you know I just wanted to prove that we can do what the guys can do, even if there is more emotion tied to it. Chelsea, this is Amy. Um, I promise you, the guys are all screaming on TV too. So <laughs> you're right. <laughs> not just the ladies. <laughs> I I thought about that too. I was like, you know, actually, the guys do their fair share of 
screaming and being scared. So it's, it's, it's all good. <laughs> My next question for the ladies was, do you feel like the preparation for the investigation is kind of just as important as the actual investigation? I think that the shows do a good job of showing everything that's involved in paranormal investigating. It's not just show up, look for ghosts. It's also, like you all said, the research and the equipment, where to put the equipment and set up. So talk about, do you feel like the the act of actually getting ready for the investigation is just as important as the investigation itself as it's occurring? Yeah, this is Katrina, and I, I think it's, I think for everything before the actual investigation is probably more of the work we do, if that makes sense. I don't think I'm putting that into words exactly how I want it, but um, I I think the bulk of the investigation is the pre-investigation and the post-investigation, to be honest. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of that stuff isn't shown in the final product just because it's done off-site. It's done before we go or it's done after we go. Um, for example, evidence uh, and evidence review, you know, in, in the frame of being on location, we only have a certain amount of time to be able to review that stuff. And sometimes things are missed. Sometimes things are misidentified. And so, you know, it's really important, the post work that happens to, to kind of get the full picture of the investigation together. And um, again, since we're not on site anymore, a lot of that stuff uh, doesn't always make it to camera. So um, I agree with you. I think it does a pretty good job, but there are those key points that, that miss out sometimes. Yeah, I always tell, this is Amy, I always tell people that the, the research, especially to us, um, is just as important as walking around in the dark trying to talk to ghosts, you know, because, you know, without, so we do a lot of that beforehand, a lot of that prep beforehand, um, because it's so huge for us when we get some sort of activity or evidence that actually aligns with something that we have found uh, in research, or maybe sometimes we, it will lead us to further research. So um, yes, I think that prep beforehand and just kind of, the knowledge of the case in general. So you know what equipment you want to use, you know, know who you want to talk to. I wish, you know, kind of like what Katrina was saying, like, I don't think people understand the amount of work that goes into an actual case and uh, how many moving parts there are and how hard it is to fit that into, you know, 43 minutes of television. So this is Cindy. I really think the camera setup is so important. I, I really a, a, admire the production and, 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 you know, Shane and Dave and, and how they deal with the equipment. That's not my, my, my thing. But, you know, looking back, the way the cameras are in all the rooms and set up and how we're able to capture all of these things in rooms when we're not in there, I think that's so important. And there's a lot of work that goes into, you know, um, into all of that. And, and the tech stuff is so fascinating to me because it's fairly new to me. Um, in, and I haven't worked with it until I've been on a paranormal show. So I'm really um, happy to be working with people who are so knowledgeable about all of the different tech stuff that, that is in the field. And I've been learning from that. And also, I think it's cool because people can see what goes into it, people that do paranormal investigations on their own that are fans of the show, then they can learn, you know, new techniques and have new ideas when they're going into their own investigation. So I think it's a really important part of, of all of it. And I totally agree with you guys when it comes to just the idea that preparation is key and, you know, it really does help make for a more successful night and kind of knowing what you're up against or what you're going into um, possibly experience. Uh, but, one of the craziest things I think for me um, being on a show where a lot of the interviews that are 
um, not in person when it's not with the actual cast. I don't get to see those interviews until after the show airs. So I think the most wild moments are when someone who's been interviewed that I've never seen the interview had something um, that they experienced that was the exact, almost the exact same thing as we did. And I just think that's a really cool element to it. Um, just being on the other side of it, it, it actually makes those scenes a lot more scary for me when I watch them because I'm like, no way. So there's a part of this whole process that's actually really, really entertaining for me too. <laughs> and finally, another great question that was asked during the press conference was, what do you think is the cause for an increased interest in the world of the paranormal? One, you, you, hit, you hit part of it on the nail was that it's, you know, over the last 20 years since it's been talked about, I think the taboo of it has kind of gone to the wayside. And I think because people in the field have, ha- have had more of a platform, we've been able to talk about what the field actually is about and what it isn't about. Because, again, before there were all these misconceptions. Um, for example, you know, it wasn't uncommon for places that I went um, to be picketed as far as people saying, we don't want you here. This is against God. This is against nature. And now they kind of understand, well, that's not really what we're there to do. And, you know, this might not have anything to do with religious beliefs. Um, we're merely trying to collect objective, you know, documentation of things. And so um, I think a lot of this misconceptions have definitely gone away. I think the other part, Amy touched on it earlier, that during times of um, stress and trauma, we usually see an increase in people being interested in the field Um Specifically, I think the first time we really see that is with the Fox sisters after the Civil War. Mm-hmm. Um, we also see an increase after World War One. Um, so, you know, I, I don't I'm not surprised at all that there's more of an interest going on right now. Yeah, this is Amy. I, I also feel like um, to add on that is that there's just a lot more of a platform at the moment. You know, back a long time ago when I was on Ghost Hunters, um, there weren't nearly as many cable networks. DVRs didn't exist. You know, now you have the opportunity. There, there's so there are so there's so much more content out there involving the paranormal, um, and it makes it so much more accessible to people. And now the content isn't just you know one way of thinking in the paranormal. It presents a number of different ways of thinking in the paranormal. And so the conversation is just always happening uh, and. And I think people are starting to kind of wake up to the idea that, you know, maybe the idea of ghosts wasn't so cut and dry and that there, there is a lot more to it than just, you know, thinking that ghosts are something spooky and scary, but that there's actually like a, a, a lot of theories behind this and reason to believe that there, that spirits exist. And um, it's, I love hearing these conversations happen. And I think, again, with social media, it, it's a lot easier to have them that way as well. Mine's kind of just uh, reiterating um, kind of what they said. You know, this is something that's being talked about a lot more now. Um, There's a lot more open-mindedness about the topic. And just simply the fact that it's being broadcasted and talked about more on, you know, large platforms now, um, what we all get to do. Um, And being the newest member of the Travel Channel squad, I have to thank the pioneers who paved the way, who went through the difficult process of making this more of a comfortable topic. Um, So I get to, you know, do what I get to do. It's it's important to, you know, take a step back and look like why, 
why is this happening? It's because other people made this more of a, a discussion rather than something that was frowned upon. This is Cindy. Um, I agree with all of you. And I also really believe that most people have had some sort of an experience with the other side that they can't quite explain, um, whether it be feeling the presence of a loved one or having a vivid dream of a loved one or, or feeling something in a location. And so although uh, people may be afraid to talk about it, I think the interest is, is really high. And I think it's true that this is less taboo now, and especially with social media and all of the shows, I think people do feel more comfortable talking about it and also talking to other people about uh, their own experiences. So I think there, there are a lot of things that tie into it, but I really feel that, you know, we're all intuitive. Human beings are born with the intuition. And, and I really believe that most people have had an experience they can't quite explain, and they really are interested in, in understanding what that could have been. And really, these women on these shows are absolutely amazing, and they have all kinds of different approaches to the investigations that they do. The Travel Channel is an amazing lineup of paranormal series, and a lot of them led by women. Go for your see for yourself. Check the local listings for Portals to Hell, Kindred Spirits, of course, Destination Fear, and the Holes or Files from Travel Channel. Check those out. You will definitely not be sorry that you did. And in case you missed the panel for Comic-Con at home, it's Wonder Woman Superstars of the Paranormal. You can go back and watch that on the Comic-Con at home YouTube page right now. Speaking of the Paranormal, by the way, this week the Down and Nerdy Podcast is brought to you once again by Serial Box. And the reason I bring that up is, is that one of the shows that I've been into recently is called Knox. It's a 1930s Manhattan PI who can actually perceive horrific supernatural phenomena and investigates a strange and sinister murder. And I am absolutely hooked on this. It's got really, it's got like Hellblazer, John Constantine vibes to it. It is just an amazing series with an amazing female lead that I might have. But that's just some of the stuff that you can find on Serial Box. That's S-E-R-I-A-L Box because it is some of the some of the most popular series on there, like Orphan Black, is on there. Marvel's Jessica Jones playing with fire, which I've talked about, and, and countless others as well. And the first episode of every series is free on Serial Box. So you want to talk about lowering your risk of trying something new? That that certainly does that right there. As a matter of fact, Bustle describes Serial Box as if you adore podcasts and books, and we know that you do. Serial Box is a must-have. So if you've got to have it, you can get 40% off select titles right now by going to SerialBox.com. Again, that's S-E-R-I-A-L Box.com slash D-N-P-O-D or enter promo code D-N-P-O-D and you'll get 40% off select titles like Knox and like some of those Marvel series that I mentioned. There are so many to choose from. You're probably going to end up using this every day like I do and I literally use this every day. Go to SerialBox.com slash DNPod or enter code DNPod to get 40% off select titles and find your next binging obsession with Serial Box. That's going to do it for my chat with the Wonder Women of the Paranormal from the Travel Channel up next. Yeah, it's Nerd News time and it's the first half of our Comic-Con at Home Nerd News Edition. We'll get to it next. I'm James Witham and this is the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Jason Lyles from Rampage the Movie, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This year, everybody got a badge. It's time for nerd news. Yep, it is Comic-Con at home, 
And I'm going to talk about some of the biggest stories that happened on Thursday from some of the panels and some of the releases that came out. And I want to start with New Mutants, because remember I talked about not too long ago, one of the episodes that, you know, New Mutants was a last minute addition to Comic-Con at home and that they were going to do a panel and everybody's thinking, okay, there's going to be, we're finally going to get to find out that the movie's going to be released at home, right? This is going to be awesome. This is great. It's about time that we're going to get this. And what we got was the complete opposite as of what we should have gotten, quite frankly. They are sticking to, as of me recording this, which is on the Friday of Comic-Con, okay? So maybe they're going to change their minds. But as of me recording this, in the panel, they are sticking with their August 28th release date in theaters, okay? No mention of a Disney Plus or Hulu date, no mention of a video on demand date, anything like that. In theaters, August 28th, the entire panel was basically just, you know, just chatting with the cast about stuff, and and yeah, there were some sweepstakes, and you know, you get some emojis and stuff like that, and I'm like, we just want to see the movie at this point. It's like, cool, you're giving away posters, and yeah, all the cast is really excited about their characters. Haven't we heard from the cast over the last several years about this movie since like 2018 we've been waiting for this thing we don't need to hear more from the cast and i love the cast and by the way this is not their fault this is not the director's fault this is not the producer's fault this is the fault of those who should have released this friggin' movie when they had the chance a couple of years ago there was no reason to get to this point and there was certainly no reason to give us This panel, I'm sorry. Yes, the scene that they showed, the opening scene of the movie, was cool. You can go see it for yourself. I don't don't need to describe it for you. You can actually go see it. The trailer they put out, very, very cool. It looks good, but we've known that for a while now. We've known how it looks aesthetically. We want to see it. We already wanted to see it. And what you should have given us was an at-home release date of some kind. Because if you think you're going to make that August date and everything's going to be fine and dandy with theaters, you are kidding yourselves. It is absolutely ridiculous if you think you're going to wear, you're going to make that date. And I think it was the director, Josh Boone, said, wear a mask. And I'm like, yeah, okay, good. that's great advice, Josh, if we can actually get into the theaters to see it. And in a lot of states, you're not getting in the theater. Maybe things will change in a month. Maybe I'm wrong. And even if you could, are you going to be comfortable going to the theater? I've talked about that before, and I'm not going to get into that whole thing again either. But one of the funniest lines in the panel was, oh, one lucky fan's going to get a chance to see the movie before anybody else does, I think was the line. And I'm like, are they? Really? Like, at at this point, I have zero faith that I'm ever going to see this movie. I know it'll come out eventually. I'm not stupid. But at the same time, you've been dragging your feet for almost... Three years now. Enough is enough. We're in the middle of a pandemic. Don't be stubborn. Don't try to think you're going for a cash grab by opening in theaters when that's really not going to happen. The more and more you delay this, the less and less people are going to be interested in this movie. I'm sorry. That's just the way it is. So what they should have done was given the fans what they really deserved, which was not emojis, not free posters, a friggin' release date. That's what you should have given your fans. And hopefully... That's what they're going to get, an at-home release date or a dual 
at-home and theater release date because if you think you're making that August date and everything's going to be fine, that is not going to be the case. Here's a movie that actually got it right. How about Orion Pictures and Bill and Ted Face the Music who actually got this thing correct because guess what? They did exactly what New Mutants should have done in the first place. Bill and Ted Face the Music is going to come be coming out in theaters and on video on demand on September the 1st. They put out a new trailer. It looks funny. It actually added to content that we saw from some of the previous trailers. If you want to see the trailer, go to downandnerdypodcast.com. We got a cool new poster. We know that their, their daughters are going to be involved in this. And, you know, maybe they've screwed up the timeline in the future. We know all of these things. And their panel hasn't even happened yet. This all came out before their panel, which is supposed to be on Saturday, July 25th at 3 o'clock Pacific time. They they announced this before their panel, and they also announced this before the New Mutants panel. So they got out ahead of this news knowing that they're going to end up looking good because of this. You're actually giving your fans what they want. So Orion Pictures gets it. Bill and Ted, not not as big of a property as Marvel. I think that we can agree on that. And that's not a smack in the face to Bill and Ted fans. I like Bill and Ted as well. But I think that we're, we can all agree on the fact that Marvel is a bigger overall property, yes? But these they, they get it. And maybe you feel like, okay, well, Bill and Ted doesn't stand to lose as much as Marvel does. Marvel's been losing money on the, no matter who owns the rights to this movie, have been losing money since 2018, Okay, this Bill and Ted movie hasn't been delayed nearly as many times, and they've they've decided to, and not and not very many have done this, but they decided to say, you know what, we're gonna release it in the theaters that it'll get released in, but we're also gonna do video on demand. One way or another, we're gonna try and make our money on this thing and give the fans what they want because I'm not stupid either. I know it's part of it is about money. I realize that. But at the same time, part of it is also about giving your fans what they deserve, and that is to actually see the movie that you worked on and not drag your feet on it. So I appreciate what Orion Pictures is doing here. I'm excited about this Bill and Ted movie. As a matter of fact, I'm more apt to spend my hard-earned money to watch Bill and Ted face the music on video on demand now because you didn't drag your feet, and you didn't just just, just try and have this delusional mindset that everything's going to be fine in a month and everything's going to be back to normal when we know darn right well it's not. If schools aren't going to be putting kids back in the classroom, what makes you think they're going to be putting people back in a movie theater? So Bill and Ted Face the Music are facing the music, and they've decided to say, you know what, you've got this option or you've got this option. Whatever you feel more comfortable with because we want you to be safe, we want you to see our movie, but yeah, we still want to make some money at the same time. So all of the options that they put out there are good ones as far as I'm concerned. And then you get to decide what's best for you as a Bill and Ted fan, and I applaud them for that. If you thought there wasn't room for another Star Trek series, you would be wrong, because during the Star Trek Universe panel that happened on Thursday, yep, there was an announcement about another new Star Trek series. And you might be thinking, how is that possible? Well, it's a little bit different, because it's going to be a Star Trek CG animated series on Nickelodeon called Star Trek Prodigy. So they're finally going to make something for the younger audience, which is something they haven't really done in what seems like forever since the original series, the animated series that was out, right? They haven't really made anything for kids 
in a while, and the the, the story is actually going to follow a group of lawless teens who discover a derelict Starfleet ship and use it to search for adventure, meaning, and salvation. So that's just a little bit of what they've got going on there. You got Kevin and Dan. Hagman, who did Troll Hunters and Ninjago, they're going to be involved in this. And of course, it's going to be overseen by Nickelodeon. And, and you know that CBS uh, Pictures Television is going to be involved in this as well. I, I'm just, I think that this is a good thing, actually, because what do I say about comics? You know, you, you want to make sure that you're giving something to your younger fans to get them hooked on something that you want them to love. When they're older, and sure, you—that's not to say that kids can't also enjoy certain other things that are put out from Star Trek, right? But, but again, this is something that you can watch with your younger kids that you know is is safe. You know, it's it's a cartoon series that you know it's going to be safe for them to watch. It's not going to be anything too scary on there. For you know, that's for certain kids. So, so stuff might be a little too scary or whatnot, or too intense. And this is a good way to get them into the world of Star Trek. And then as they start to get older, you know, they they might want to learn more about shows like Discovery, about shows like eventually about Lower Decks and about Picard and things like that. And then that leads them back to Star Trek, the next generation and the original series and the movies and things like that. And however you feel about that stuff, you know, you let people judge that for themselves. Some people love certain things, some people don't. But this is a good way to get younger fans interested in, in Star Trek, and I think that that's something that, that a lot of of nerd properties should do more often, and sci-fi and comic books, whatever. Make sure you have something for these younger fans so you can, you know, like, like they say, get them started young, right? Well, that's exactly what Star Trek is trying to do here. They're trying to get the younger fans to start wanting to consume their product, and then once they get older, they're already hooked. They already want to see what you're doing. So, bravo, as far as I'm concerned. As much as I've said, you know, enough with the Star Trek series, like, come on, like, this, enough is enough already, I, I, I will totally go the other way on this one and say I am all for having a Star Trek series on Nickelodeon. I can't wait to see what it looks like. Speaking of comic book properties coming to the screen, we have yet another one from Image Comics, and this time I think it's one that you're going to be really happy about. It's Paper Girls. It's going to be coming to Amazon Prime Video. It looks like sometime in 2021. By the, by the way, that's when that Star Trek series is going to be coming out sometime in 2021 on Nickelodeon. But this one is Paper Girls going to be based on, of course, the series from Brian K. Vaughn and Clifford Chang, the comic series that I believe it's on its fifth or sixth volume now, I think. Correct me if I'm wrong on that. But the executive producers on this one, Pretty great. Stephanie Folsom, Christopher Cantwell, and Christopher C. Rogers are going to be involved in this co-show running as well. It's going to be legendary television in associated with is in association with Plan B. And yeah, it's about four young girls who are kind of out delivering papers on morning after Halloween in 1998, and they become unwittingly caught in a conflict between warring factions of time travelers, then sending them on an adventure through time that will save the world. That is the basis of the story. And this, again, I think this fits very well on Amazon. Amazon seems to know what they're doing when it comes to comic book properties. I mean, just look at the boys, which by the way, is going to get a third season before season two even airs. Right. And that clip that they showed during that panel. Oh my goodness. 
It was so good. But I don't want to get sidetracked too much because we're talking about paper girls here. But Amazon seems to put a premium on authenticity. And that's what they're doing with a lot of their comic book properties and sci-fi properties. They do them justice. And when you've got a, an amazing storyteller, storyteller like Brian K. Vaughn, and he and Clifford Chang going to be part of the executive producer team on this series, of course. When you've got a story like this, you need a place like Amazon that has very character-driven storytelling already anyway. And I think that, that this is just the perfect home for an adaptation for Paper Girls. So I cannot wait to see exactly what they're going to do with this once it finally hits the screen. Again, you know, this is a live action thing and filming difficulties and things being what they are. You know, not necessarily a firm release date on this one, but yeah, I will definitely keep you posted. And don't forget, I'll have more from Comic-Con at home on the show next week. That's going to do it for Nerd News. Up next, speaking of Comic-Con at home, yeah, Rooster Teeth's going to have a panel at Comic-Con at home, and they're part of the Transformers War for Cybertron Siege series that's coming to Netflix. I'll talk to showrunner F.J. DeSanto. That's up next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is writer Brandon Easton, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, you know that we are so excited for Transformers War of Cybertron Siege coming to Netflix at the end of this month, July 30th, as a matter of fact. Who better to get on to talk about this than showrunner and executive producer F.J. DeSanto. F.J., how you doing? I'm great. Thank you. Thanks for, thanks for having me. Now, you've been a part of quite a few Transformers projects over the course of your career, actually. What made you especially excited to work on this War for Cybertron series? The, the previous ones I worked on, I, I was a writer-producer on those and, and wasn't the showrunner until, like, the third season of Prime Wars, but by then the sort of creative was on its own path. For, the, for this, um, I'm excited for this one because, you know, I got to develop this from scratch, basically from what Hasbro was doing with the toy line and getting sort of an advanced peek of what they were going to do, you know, over the next X amount of years and really collaborate with them and our writers to develop something that, that is, A, I think really fresh and sophisticated and cool, um, but also fun and, and, you know, genuinely transformers to its core. So for me, it's much more of a personal connection, but it's also the opportunity to do something from the ground up that we really feel honors, you know, the, the franchise. Now, this is easily one of the most visually striking Transformers projects that I think I've ever seen. And that's just based on the trailers that I've seen. What was it like working with Rooster Teeth on this? Well, it's great because Rooster Teeth gave us the freedom to really be creative with it, especially when we were, you know, developing it, et cetera. And, you know, we did this also with, you know, the, the main studios in Japan called Polygon Pictures. And Polygon had done, you know, a tremendous amount of high-end, like, 3D anime. And they had done Transformers before. Um, they had done the recent, like, Godzilla movies that were on Netflix, et cetera. So we really saw the opportunity you know, between everybody, between Netflix, Rooster Teeth, and, and Hasbro, to sit there and really collaborate as one basically giant team that was supporting everything we were doing creatively. So, for example, you know, a lot of the models, the toy mo- the, the character models all come direct from Hasbro's digital data for the toys because we wanted them to be as accurate as possible. So it's a, the genuine sense of collaboration Whereas in the past and other productions I've been on, you know, everything is very, you know, well, the studio's over here and the animators are over here, et cetera. This is, this is sort of, 
we were able to sort of galvanize everybody under one umbrella in a way that I think the show has benefited greatly from. Uh, and I think the fans are going to benefit greatly from that process also, because I, I in, in my years of, of producing, I, I'm, I'm hard pressed to think of something where all the, all the, the parties in the project were so aligned and collaborative to execute on, on such a high level on something that, you know, everybody seemed to understand what it is and what it can be and what it will be and how to execute on the highest possible level. Speaking of the fans, one of the things that fans have talked a lot about, at least in the early going of the project anyway, was that the great Peter Cullen would not be the voice of Optimus in this series. Now, Jake Fauci is certainly no rookie when it comes to voicing Optimus. So what do you think he brings to the role in this particular story? Well, Jake brings an energy to it that I think is reflective of what this is as a prequel to G1, as a prequel to what, you know, the legends like Cullen have established. And I think Jake, you know, brings that a youthful exuberance to the character, but does it in a way that honors with everything that's come before. Um, Jake is absolutely incredible and talented and, and really willing to be pushed to the limit of his acting abilities on this show. And you'll see as it progresses over the, the trilogy, you know, and sort of where Optimus goes with this, Jake gives it his all and, and never gives less than 200%. And he's an absolute joy to watch in the booth, you know, sort of want to bring the emotion to the character in a way I don't, I don't think we've seen before. Speaking of energy like that, was there another voice casting that you were particularly excited about or somebody else that really stood out in the booth that you're excited for fans to see? Yeah, there, there, I mean, look, to be honest, there, there, there's a bunch. And it's a, in a lot of ways, it's like asking to pick your, your, your favorite child. Sure, because sure. Everybody, you know, everybody, and, and that has a lot to do with our voice director, a guy named Phil Bach, who really, you know, he came out of the video game space and we worked together on the last Transformers, on the third one of Prime Wars. And, you know, again, like I said, he just understood what this needed to be. And, you know, but there, I mean, you have this, there's a, there's a lady named Lindsay Rousseau who plays Alita One. And I think Alita, is, Alita One is probably the character I'm most excited about because it's a character that's existed in the franchise before, but has never really gotten her, her sort of moment in the spotlight. And that was sort of a priority for us. And then, you know, Jason Marnoka as Megatron, who's just incredible. And Frank Todaro plays Starscream, who's very similar to Jake in that he understands the the core of that character, you know. And, and, and again, a lot of these guys are fans. That's another thing is I think you're dealing with sort of the, the I think we're dealing with the first or second generation of fans who grew up with it. And so they feel you know, like a, a responsibility to the characters that they're playing. But again, there, there's a lot of, I mean, I, I, there's not a single bad voice in the bunch. No doubt about that. Now, some fans might not actually know this, FJ, but you're a comic book writer as well. And I know you have other fellow comic book writers like Brandon Easton working on War for Cybertron mm -hmm. as well. So do you feel like that background as a comic book writer actually helped with the authenticity of this project, both visually and story-wise? Yeah, I do, because uh, I'll tell you, I think, you know, a lot of it has to do with this is, I, I think, unless I'm missing something, the first sort of streaming specific Transformers show that you know is going to be binged in advance. And so 
one of the approaches we took with the episodes is very much like a comic book, you know, where a comic book needs to, or should, in my opinion, end with a cliffhanger that makes you say, Hey, I gotta, I gotta get the next issue. Right. And so, you know, we approach the episodes very similarly that they end on a specific cliffhanger where it's like, Oh man, I got to find out what happens next and, and do that. And I think, you know, someone like Brandon who comes from a comic background and again, it's similar to what I was saying about with the voice actors is the, there's an affinity for it. You know, like, you know, you have George Christick who, who's, who's written on this show. George is a, is a lifelong collector and, and so is Gavin Hignite. You know what I mean? Like, so, so everybody involved with this has a fandom attached to it, you know, and it's funny because you have certain people depending on their age or they're, G1 fan or they are a Beast Wars fan or they, you know, where, where did they come into this franchise? It's in our heads. And, you know, we got to, we had Flint Dilly who wrote, you know, all the classic episodes in the 86 movie, you know, who's a legend of the Transformers world come to the office before everything shut down. And, and we showed him a couple of the episodes and, you know, and, the, and he said, I, I, I can't, I feel bad for you guys that you guys have to live up to our continuity. We do, when we did this, we didn't know that people were going to be watching these things 30, 35 years later. And, you know, now we're that generation who's doing these shows, sort of realizing that, you know, like sort of taking that as, as our, our mythology, you know, G1 and Transformers, that's our, that's our modern mythology, and we're trying to honor that here. Absolutely. We're talking to F.J. DeSanto, who's the showrunner for Transformers War for Cybertron Siege, which you can obviously see on Netflix on July the 30th. Now, F.J., Diehard Transformers fans know there's much more to the relationship between Optimus and Megatron than what we've seen on the screen, on the big screen, I should say, anyway. Now, can you tell us if we will get into that backstory a little bit with War for Cybertron? Yeah, we're gonna. And again, it, it's going back to that sort of binging aspect of it. It's almost approached like a movie where we're going to learn these things as we keep going. This is a, not really a spoiler thing, but you know, the first episode is going to, you know, the first time we put Optimus and Megatron together is not during a very, very big, you know, war scene of Autobots versus Decepticons. It's, it's very much a one-on-one -on -one confrontation between the two of them. You could see a little bit of it in the trailers. And what we, we intentionally did that because what we wanted to do from the very first episode was get to the crux and the core of what these guys are and the difference between the two of them, the differences. We've tried to take what was always, you know, very classic about them is, is what they both want is what they think is best for Cybertron. And we're trying to do it in a way that's very modern. Like I said earlier, sophisticated in a way where, you know, it's not necessarily they're both one is right and one's wrong, you know, and it can be looked at from both sides. Now I'm not saying you know, Megatron's a good guy in this or whatever, or an Optimus is a bad guy. I'm just saying there's a lot more thought behind that. And as the series progresses, or as the trilogy progresses, we're going to get bits of information about that relationship and, and their backstories of who they were before this war. You know, I, I think Alita plays a big part in that. You know, with Megatron, we're going to learn why he ascended to the, you know, sort of lead the Decepticons. And I think that's really crucial. But like I said, we're gonna we're gonna see that very early and give you the information and 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 who are the players in that in that story, you know, in that backstory. Yeah, I think it's I think it's ultra important. And we like I said, we start on it in a in a way that's very intimate between the two of them in terms of 
their personalities so we can establish the playing field very clearly from the beginning and then grow it from there. I actually feel like on the surface, both of the leaders seem to feel, it seems like they're both facing catastrophic choices. Obviously, when you're a villain, it's kind of an easier sell to your to your loyalty fan base there. So how do you think the Autobots will see and how they will struggle with this plan that's put in front of them? Well, it's, it's tricky because it's, it's, again, I don't, I don't want to give too much away, but I mean, the, I guess it's in the promo stuff now. But the, but the idea is, you know, the centerpiece of this whole thing is the AllSpark. And the AllSpark has never appeared sort of as the AllSpark in the animated continuity. So to have this opportunity to sort of find a way to introduce it and how to use it in ways we haven't seen before is very interesting. And when we pick up on the show, again, I don't think I'm spoiling anything that's not out there already. The, the whole show, the whole siege takes place over the final hours of the war. So it's not like they're not episodic, meaning like it's not episode of the week. It's, it's literally just one big story divided into six chapters. And so it's literally we're at a point where the Autobots have no other move to make. And Megatron is sort of he's basically won the war at this point. I mean, like there, there's very few Autobots left. He, he's and, and when we sort of first meet him, it's, it, he's again, I'm spoiling a little bit is he. he He's not sitting there going, you know, let's just murder everybody. He's not the mustache twirling guy. There is a code of honor amongst the Transformers, meaning, you know, it's, it's very much inspired by World War II movies and things like that. So, you know, with the Autobots, it's, it's not necessarily, hey, pr- you know, Prime comes up with a plan and everybody just goes, you know, yay, let's roll out. You know, it's not that. I mean, there are questions. There are, there are Autobots that are going to sit there and question, like, is this a good idea? Like, it almost seems desperate. And they are desperate at this point. They, they, they are cornered. They are on the run. They are, this is not the Cybertron we've seen in G1. This is before that. So, you know, it's a very different dynamic versus what we've seen. And the choices they make, you know, not everyone is the smartest decision, et cetera. And sometimes you're blinded by desperation. And I'm, I'm trying, trying to phrase these things without spoiling it too much. But, you know, and, and the same goes for the other side is, you know, Megatron's eventual plan with the AllSpark leads to certain actions that don't, that, that have Decepticons questioning him in various ways. Whether he's, you know, some, some Decepticons think he's too hard on the Autobots and some think he's too light on the Autobots. I mean, you can figure that out sure. you know, at a certain yeah. point if you know the, the history of the characters. Sure. So that, that's really, you know, we're, we're taking those core pillars of the franchise and, and, and presenting them in a way where we sort of know what G1, you know, when we get to G1, what happened, but we have this sort of fertile ground to sort of really make this character driven. And, you know, people have said this before, by the way, people have said like, okay, we're gonna do a character driven Transformers. This is genuinely character driven. Like it's, it's, it's driven by these two guys and they're, you know, and, and not to say the show doesn't have action in it, but what I'm saying is those actions all have consequences. And they all mean something. And that was really important to us from the beginning. You know, for example, when you look at the promo materials and, and you know, you see Bumblebee doesn't have an Autobot logo yet, you know, and that, that's a big part of the story. You know, I'm only saying that because I know by the time people hear this, the poster will be out and it shows Bumblebee with no Autobot logo. So that, that there's, there's all going to be reasons. And fans are are pretty sharp when they see these trailers and, and the posters, they start to figure these things out. Like, 
oh, this must mean this and, you know, about jet fire and all this stuff. And, and you know, eight out of ten times they're right about it, but we, we, we try to put different spins on it to get to those places. Of course. Where you sit there and go, it's just not that simple and it's not that, you know, cartoony. You know, like we, we, we've tried to approach these characters as if they were actual be- bots that exist. You know, that was really important from the beginning, they, that they had to have distinct personalities and voices that represent the, the core version of who these characters are. Now, normally, FJ, when, with a series, you get a single season and you wait for renewal news and you know that, you know how the whole thing goes. Now, how freeing was it, though, knowing that from the very beginning that this was going to be a trilogy? You know, what we did was, it's great. First of all, it's great. I mean, I mean, for a number of reasons, you know, we all get to work on this. We all get to sort of, you know, know for the next couple of years, we're going to be able to shepherd this story in a way, in a satisfying way, as opposed to having a question mark over whether or not it comes back or not. So what that did was that allowed us really, really early on to sort of plot the whole thing out, meaning the trilogy was mapped out maybe now 18 months ago and so like george and i went to hasbro in rhode island and hasbro sort of you know after you sign 200 ndas sure. they put you in a room and they, they show you hey here's the trilogy like these are the three chapters you know for the toy line and these are the sort of key characters etc and they sort of take us through the themes and the tones and you know, well, we're going to do a figure of this, you know, these hundred or whatever, how many they do over the trilogy. And they sort of give us the themes. Like they sat there and they went, well, first one's called Siege and it's, you know, the Band of Brothers. And it's, it's, those are the things that inspired it. Saving Private Ryan wanted to do something that's, you know, uh, war specific. And they give us that bit of a framework. And then, you know, then the second one was Earthrise and the third one, which they'll eventually reveal at some point. But they sort of gave us like, as I like to often say, the 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 toys in the sandbox kind of thing mm-hmm. and and that and that basically allowed us to go you know sort of go back and develop you know the, the what george and i did was go and develop like a, a document i don't know remember how many pages it was that was sort of a roadmap of the whole thing the, the first season like siege was broken down very carefully and then less so for the other two because we wanted to see how it evolved but we sort of had a roadmap like where we're like okay, this is where these characters start, this is where they go, and this is where it ends. And it evolves over the writing process and, and, and all that stuff, but the key was we had sort of our own little mini Bible that everybody involved, whether it was Rooster Teeth, Netflix, or Hasbro, had all signed off on in the beginning so there would be no surprises, you know, as the scripts were coming in. They sort of knew where it was going. So if there was something like, wait a minute, why did this happen? It's like, well, you know, that's going to pay off in the second or third one. You know what I mean? Things mm-hmm. like that. And, and I think that was essential in the beginning. So, and, and again, knowing these things would be binged, we wrote them in very specific ways. Whereas like this one takes place over basically, you know, the last couple hours, the other two ch- chapters don't necessarily do that, you know, just because artistically and, and, and story-wise it made more sense to do it these other ways. So there's going to be a lot of like, twists and turns with it and i also think as it keeps going it gets deeper into like crazy fandom stuff that i think like diehard fans are going to lose their mind over but i I can't give away too much but like i think once we have siege sort of established we have the freedom to really 
expand on the Transformers universe in a way I don't think anybody's done before that I think people are going to really like. You know, like I said, we have a lot of fans involved with this, and I, I feel and we, we've been good at sort of having enough people to sort of police police it from a fan point of view versus what we didn't want this to be was just like my idea of how I would have played with the toys when I was a little kid, which I think previous versions have done, mm-hmm. previous showrunners have done. This is what what do people want? And the the idea was always sort of if you were if you had watched Transformers over the thirty five plus years you would get what was going on. You could jump right into it really easily and it honors everything you love. But if you had never seen Transformers before, this would be the perfect jumping on point because it's not necessarily an origin. It's not like, oh, how did Orion Pax become Optimus Prime? It's like, no, it's sort of like, you know, like, it's funny because everything for me is storytelling-wise is always rooted in Star Wars. And the beauty of Star Wars was always, you know, from the original movie was they just drop you into the middle of it. You know what I mean? Right, and you'll exactly. get the information as you go. So, you know, and we sort of did that with this. The idea was always to hit the ground running. And as we kept going, you know, that template we realized worked really, really well because it would give us the opportunity to reveal to the audience those things you were asking about earlier about like tidbits about their relationships and things like that without having to do, you know, two hours of, hi, I'm Optimus, hi, I'm Megatron, and they're friends, and then they suddenly hate each other. It's like, mm-hmm. no, let's just get to the point where they hate each other and then learn about that and how these how these different bots factor into that. Consider this 101 reasons that you need to be watching Transformers War for Cybertron Siege, which is going to premiere on Netflix on July the 30th. Personally, I can't wait. And thanks to this guy for joining me this week. It's FJ DeSanto. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate it. See, you know, after hearing FJ DeSanto talk, I'm even more excited for Transformers War for Cybertron Siege. This really feels like, top to bottom, a passion project for so many involved. And I know that, as I know that you're a Transformers fan, I'm a Transformers fan, G1 style for myself. This is a passion for us that we've wanted to see get fulfilled the right way for so long. And I feel like this is the thing that's really, really going to come to the forefront and go, this is what you've been waiting for you're welcome. And we're going to find out on Netflix less than a week from now, actually, because we're talking about July the 30th, Transformers War for Cybertron Siege premieres on Netflix. I cannot wait. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Again, thanks to Netflix for letting me chat with FJ DeSanto about this series coming up. Also, thanks to the folks at Serial Box, our sponsor this week. Make sure you're going to SerialBox.com. That's S-E-R-I-A-L box dot com slash dnpod or enter promo code dnpod get 40 percent off select titles like the amazing knocks that you're definitely going to want to binge along with so many others also make sure you're checking us out on social media at down and nerdy 757 on twitter and on instagram and at down and nerdy on facebook and always online at down and nerdy podcast.com we'll have more from comic-con at home next week but for now Remember, you never have to apologize for being a nerd, so let your fan flag fly and be good to your fellow nerds. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. 
Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.